So as we begin this morning in Acts 19, we will be looking at a lot of the chapter today. Uh, These verses 11 to 20 that I just read will kind of be the result of what we're going to talk about this morning in our text. If you've been joining us for several weeks, you'll know that we've been in Acts for a while. Um, We have a few more weeks to go until Advent. We'll be finishing up Acts just before December. But the idea is that God is on the move. As we look through the book of Acts, we see God moving in and through his believers and his church. And not just moving, but also teaching his church what it means to be his people. So that's where it becomes applicable to you and me today. So as we go through this series, and as you remember what we've already learned in previous weeks and what we're learning today and then going forward, what we're trying to do is learn how to be the church. Learn how to be God's people, to be obedient to what he wants us to be, and to see how God moves when we are obedient To his purposes. So today, Acts chapter 19. Today, uh, you'll notice on the front of your bulletin, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. So today uh, in Acts, you see Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. And it's later that he writes a letter to the Ephesians that are living in that city. And this is one of the things that he writes. On the front of the bulletin, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, it says... And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So you may wonder, why do we spend half of our worship services every Sunday listening to someone teach? You ever thought about proportionately? Like, we spend a lot of time teaching in our public worship gathering each week. And we do two other teaching times throughout the week as well, at our Sunday school and on Wednesday night. As the church, we spend a lot of time teaching. Why do we do this? Why do we spend so much time teaching? And you may be saying, uh, Stephen, what is, what is your job as the pastor? Uh, what are you supposed to be doing anyway? Uh, You can answer that question in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of things I I think biblically I'm called to do as your pastor, but not the least of which is to teach. More specifically, to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. My job is to equip you for the work of ministry. It's easy to forget that sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's easy to think that you know, maybe a, a pastor or a staff of pastors uh, is to do the work, but it's actually my job to equip you to do it. So that's why we spend 30 minutes teaching each Sunday. Uh, and the songs equip us too, don't get me wrong. These hymns and these songs that we sing, they teach us truths as well. But today we're going to be talking about the church being about the equipping of the saints for ministry. What does that mean? How does Paul do it? And what do we learn from Acts 19 while Paul is in Ephesus? The word equipping in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, um, it's the only time that particular word is used in the whole Bible, equipping. And uh, let's just take a minute to think through what this word means. So I've kind of been using already teaching and equipping as interchangeable, and that's, that's, I think that's, that's okay. But equipping does have a deeper meaning to it, I think, also. When I was looking up what this word meant uh, outside of the Bible, because when, when, when it's only used one time in the Bible, that means you have to look outside the Bible to see where else is this word equipping used 
in that time period, in the early ancient days, the first century. And the way this word equipping is used outside the Bible is actually as a medical term. Has anybody ever broken a bone? When I was in eighth grade, I had a a 12-week stretch where I broke my right wrist, had a cast on for six weeks, got the cast off, then broke the left wrist (laughs) and had cast on for six weeks with the left wrist. So I had, I didn't, they weren't broken at the same time, but I, had, I broke both my wrists in the same calendar time. And what I learned when I broke my wrist was, I mean, you break a wrist, you can, usually, you can see it. You can see the broken bone. You go to the doctor, and the first thing they have to do is they have to set it. They have to set the bone back into place before they put the cast on. I see some of you shuddering already. But the word equipping here actually is a medical term that actually is for that, the setting of a bone. That's what equipping here means. And so when you think about equipping the saints for the work of ministry, it's actually the pastor's job to set the saints into place so that you can be healthy and whole and mature and ready to be used and strengthened. It's actually a really interesting image, isn't it, when you think about it that way. I mean, the word also has connotations of preparation or training or discipline because Again, when you set the bone in a broken wrist, for instance, you still have to put a cast on it and have six weeks for it to be healed before it can be used. So there is a, a time period here where this has to be played out. But the idea here is it's, it's a setting. It's a, it's a discipline. It's a training. It's a, it's a teaching. teaching. Teaching something to be what it's meant to be so that it can be used properly. So what does it mean to be equipped? We're going to look at three ways this morning that Acts 19 and actually dipping a little bit back into Acts 18. Um, so even Acts, Acts 18, 24, because uh, you'll see this guy named Apollos in Acts 18, 24. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along because we'll be going through each of these uh, little sections. But Acts 18, 24, we're introduced to a man named Apollos. I know Alan maybe talked about it a little bit last week with regards to the community that was forming in Acts 18 with Priscilla and Achilla and Apollos uh, and Paul. But Acts 18.24 is where actually we're going to start because Apollos is in Ephesus. He gets there before Paul does. And so uh, we're going to look at three things this morning about what equipping is. And so first, we're going to look at what equipping brings. Secondly, we're going to look at what equipping requires. And third, we're going to look at what equipping actually does. And so I hope you're thinking, as, as we're sitting here going through this sermon this morning, um, you should be judging me in some sense. Is Stephen doing this well? Because that is, that is part of my job, to do these things for you well. Uh, so first, what does equipping bring? So starting at, at verse 24 of chapter 18, we're going to look at Apollos and then Paul, and we're going to see, see what equipping brings. And I'll tell you the answer right at the beginning. Equipping is meant to bring about the maturity of your faith. The maturity of of your faith, or the completeness of your faith, the wholeness of your faith. Let me say this. You can be a Christian and not be equipped. In fact, I think every Christian is that in one sense. There's no Christian that will ever be fully mature or complete or perfect. So every Christian is always in the process of being equipped. You can never fully plumb the depths of the Bible. You can never be fully equipped, but you're always working towards being equipped. And that's why 
you know, the, when Paul says in Ephesians 4.12, equip the saints for the works of ministry, it's an ongoing process. And that's why we meet for church every week, to be equipping one another. So every person who believes in Jesus has a Christian faith, but that faith must be made complete. It must mature as you grow older. It's a childlike faith when you first believe. But you can be a Christian and not be equipped. And there's, there's many churches out there uh, and many Christians out there who have, who have not been equipped well because they haven't had pastors or teachers or leaders who have done this well. And so this is a standard that the Bible holds us to. Oftentimes, these Christians, these baby Christians, these childlike Christians, actually are the most fervent in spirit. So you'll see Acts uh, 18.25, it says that, so 24, it says, Apollos uh, came, to Alexand- or came from Alexandria to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So he knew the Bible. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was fervent in spirit. So again, look at all those things here. Paul, uh, Apollos actually is, he's in pretty good shape. He's, he's competent in the scriptures. He's been taught. He's been instructed. And he's fervent in spirit. You may say, that guy seems pretty well equipped to me. Well, hold on. Let's just keep going here for a second. Because we learn, we're starting to see here that Apollos, there's something lacking in Apollos' discipleship. He's full of passion and energy and evangelistic fervor, but he's kind of like a wild horse that hasn't been tamed yet. You kind of get that impression as you read about Apollos in this section. And so he needs a mature faith. He needs something else added on to him. So what is, what is a mature faith? If I say that equipping brings maturity, what is a mature faith? What does that actually even look like? And so let's take this beginning point, childlike faith, where you believe in Jesus and you, you have that genuine trust, just that, that, that faith in him. You begin with that. So you begin with childlike faith and you add on the second thing you need is biblical clarity. So it said that Apollos was instructed in the way of the Lord. Uh, and it says, he, he, it says in verse 25 that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he's not a heretic. He's not someone who's off base. He, he accurately is teaching. And it says in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Achilla, remember this married couple who you're introduced to last week in Acts 18, when they heard him, Verse 26, it says, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Paul was, or I'm sorry, Apollos was teaching the scriptures accurately, but it says Priscilla and Achilla came by and taught him the way of the Lord more accurately. Do you see that? I think that's a beautiful thing about what the church is supposed to be like that we can be instructed in the Lord, we can know the scriptures well, but we need people in our life who can bring us more accuracy, deeper accuracy. And so there was something about Apollos that, that wasn't as deep as it could have been. And this beautiful couple came by and they gave him clarity. They had, he had mentors that came by and invested in his life to give him more clarity. What's another way besides people coming in to your life to give you more clarity? What's, what's another way you can, you can grow in biblical clarity? You have the Bible with you. You can daily gaze at the scriptures and the Holy Spirit will teach you according to his truth and his word. 
So maybe you have a Priscilla and Achilla in your life who would come by and, and teach you more accurately and begin to expose and show things deeper for you. But also don't forget that your Bible can instruct you deeply and the Holy Spirit can teach you. All it requires is us to be teachable. Just to, to get beyond the arrogance of thinking we've already arrived or that we've already learned as much as we can about the scriptures. You never can. The Bible is a bottomless pit of deep, beautiful treasures that you'll never get to the bottom of, of seeing its beauty in new ways. So keep reading the Bible. Keep being teachable. Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. My kids are in elementary school, for instance. I think I've, I've learned a few more things since elementary school than they're learning, but they're learning the basics. Paul, uh, Hebrews says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So the scriptures tell us this. They push us to deeper faith. So to have a mature faith, you need that beginning childlike faith. You need biblical clarity. And then there's a third mystery component that I'm going to leave lingering for a second. And we're going to learn more about. So how does this play out in, um, in the rest of, of Ephesians chapter 19, or, of Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus? So we see here that uh, Apollos, it says here that he knew some things accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John, is what it says in verse 25. That was the part that he needed more clarity on. He had only been taught about the baptism of John the Baptist. He no doubt had learned about the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament, because the the Old Testament teaches about the Holy Spirit. But he wasn't there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He wasn't in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came down on the believers. So he didn't know that the Holy Spirit had been given to believers to live in them and live through them, to see God on the move through these believers. He was still operating out of Old Testament understanding of of the Holy Spirit. And so they gave clarity to him on that particular topic. They gave him more accuracy. But turn over to chapter 19 now, and we'll start learning about the Apostle Paul. So Separate story here. We leave Apollos behind for a second. We come to the Apostle Paul in in Acts 19, verse 1 to 4. And Paul shows up in Ephesus, the same city. And he, it says here, it says that he was passing through and he came to Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 1. And he found some disciples. Again, he found genuine believers. He found those who called themselves disciples, who were Christians. And he said to them, verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, that seems like a problem. Again, these are genuine Christians, but they only knew what they knew, right? They didn't have a, a book of Acts yet to tell them about Pentecost. They didn't have the printing press. They didn't have emails. They didn't have a... You know, a text message chain where the believers in Jerusalem were telling them what was happening. They, they didn't know. And so Paul shows up and he begins to equip them. So you see here, Paul takes on the, the role of the equipper. And so verse 3, he says, Then into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, just like Apollos. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And in verse 5, it says, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
So what's that third mystery component to a mature faith? You have childlike faith, biblical clarity. But what's the third thing that brings a Christian deeper into maturity day by day, year after year? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what brings a Christian, even a baby Christian, into deeper and deeper and deeper understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be equipped. Because it says here, when Paul laid his hands on them, verse 6, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men of them in all. Guys, I I read an article a couple weeks ago. Uh, It's from a recent study from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And it says this, quote, of self-identified Christians, 58% contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. Surprisingly, those who identify as born-again Christians are even more likely to hold that view. 62% and half of theological born-again Christians also deny the Holy Spirit is a being. The people in Ephesus had an excuse, I think. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have communication. They didn't know what had happened on Pentecost in Jerusalem. So they didn't know about the Holy Spirit and dwelling believers. But 62% of born-again Christians today claim to not even believe that the Holy Spirit is real, but just a symbol. And you wonder why we don't see many mature Christians emerging today. It's because the Holy Spirit is not even acknowledged in many Christians' lives. So friends, may we be reminded right now, today, that the Holy Spirit is not an it, it's not a banner, it's not a symbol, The Holy Spirit is God. He, the third person of the Godhead, a part of the Trinity. He lives and dwells in his followers. He empowers his believers with boldness and with power and with clarity and with truth. He guides them into all righteousness. He convicts us of sin. And he is the guarantee, he's he's the deposit for us before going to heaven. He's the guarantee of our salvation. He is God in us. Jesus left so the Holy Spirit could come. Jesus said, it's it's going to be better when I leave because my Holy Spirit will be with you always. And you'll be able to do greater works than I did because of the Holy Spirit living in you. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And he makes Christians mature. So may, may we know, friends, a robust, full, rich understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. We need him to live in us because he gives us life and vitality. He changes the world through us. He alone is what can take us from baby Christian to mature Christian and unpack life in the full to us. So that's what, that's what equipping brings. It brings maturity. And again, we need the Holy Spirit for that. Secondly, what does equipping require? This is an easy one. What does equipping require? Time. Time. What I want to show you here, look at verses 8 to 10, just really quickly and easily here. So again, there were 12 men that Paul equipped with the Holy Spirit. He, he taught them about the Holy Spirit. They, they trusted in him, so the Holy Spirit dwelled in them now. They came on him. Verse 8, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months 
spoke boldly. Three months is about the time that we've been learning about Acts, by the way. So that's kind of like a good barometer here for us. Three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul, he said, forget it. He withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him and he reasoned with them daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Equipping requires time. Equipping is not me telling you the truths and then you being equipped and then living on the rest of your life. Do you see the intensity of what Paul does here? He's, he's proclaiming the word broadly to believers and non-believers in the synagogue, which he did in every city in the book of Acts. But then he, he intentionally takes those disciples, those Christians, and he rents out a lecture hall, Tyrann- the hall of Tyrannus. It's basically like a lecture hall for, for intellectuals where they would do public speeches day by day, learning about things. Kind of picture renting out a, like a hall at Salem State, for instance. That's what Paul does. He's like, I'm going to take this group to the side and pour into them. And day by day, in this private set-aside place, he reasoned with them. You'll notice here it says he reasoned with them daily, which is different than what he was doing in the synagogue. In the synagogue, he was reasoning and persuading he doesn't need to persuade these guys because they're believers, they're disciples. But he's reasoning with them. He's having conversations with them. He's having you know, one-on-one conversations. He's having small group discussion. He's equipping them with the faith in a deep, intentional way. And it takes two years. There's a pastor, um, an older pastor now, but he was really influential in New England uh, over the past few decades, named Gordon McDonald. And he wrote a book called Going Deep. He was pastor at Grace Chapel Church in Lexington for many years. But he found, he wrote a book called Going Deep. And the whole book describes what he calls the most important part of his ministry. And it wasn't the preaching. What he did was he took every year a group of 10 or so from his church and invited invited them to come to his house every Monday night between 6 and 9 p.m., And they had readings, they had prayer, they had food. He was equipping them once a week for three hours for a full year. And he said, you had to be there every week. If you couldn't be there every week, then then it's not worth being part of it. But he took them deep. He went deep with them and he reasoned with them. And that's part of what equipping requires. It requires a deep, long-term time commitment. And so we as a church, we get to figure that out together. What's the best way that we can be equipping one another? And the call is high. The cost of discipleship is high because this is the most important thing in our lives. That Jesus died and rose again and he's given us himself. How do we grow to be mature in that? What's the outward effect of of time spent that way? Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All of them. Now, qualifier here, this doesn't mean like all the way to China. Their understanding of Asia in this context would have been their region of Asia Minor, which is probably Turkey, modern day Turkey. But nonetheless, this would be, this would still mean that through this deep internal equipping of time, from that flowed everybody heard the word of the Lord. Everybody. 
So can you imagine, church, if we went deep with one another and were equipping one another to such an extent that the whole city of Salem heard the word of the Lord? Because that's basically what's happening here in Ephesus. That's the result of good, mature equipping. Everybody hears the word of the Lord, and they can choose to reject it or accept it. But that's the result. It's a beautiful thing. Lastly, last point here. What does equipping do? Verses 11 to 20, which is the part that I read earlier, so I don't need to read it again. And then beyond that, into 21 to the end of the chapter, what equipping does is it identifies your faith. It places your faith with an identity deeper and more clear and more life-giving than anything else. It identifies believers ultimately and fully and completely with the person of Jesus. And if you remember what I read, verses 11 to 20, you see things in that chapter that are very similar to things that happen in our city, right? As as I was reading that that verse, that, that section earlier, verses 11 to 20, about those that are practicing magic arts, those that are, are trying to, to exercise demons, those that, that came and brought their books and laid them out and burned them, you know, forsaking those practices. Guys, this is... Ancient Ephesus and modern-day Salem are not all that different. Let me just give you a couple of things here. The context of Ephesus was it was a really wealthy city. It was the most populous city of the most prosperous and, pop- and population province of the Roman Empire. It's a wealthy place. Salem, there's a lot of places in Salem where you could uh, see the wealth here. But secondly, Ephesus had kind of gained a reputation as a city of magic, a city where people went to practice the magic arts. And so there's no accident here. That's why it was brought up here, that people were practicing magic throughout this city. It became a reputation in that city. This means that exorcism were commonplace, that people were trying to rid other people of the lesser gods so they could worship their god. And many people would have had magic books or scrolls with secret spells written in them. So when it talks about later, it says uh, in verse, uh, let's see, 18, it says those who are the, the, now the believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Another way that can be translated is it came, they came and, and were laying down their spell books their magic books that had spells in it for how to cast out things and other people. Does this sound like Salem or what? Guys, I planned this sermon series months ago, and here we are in the middle of October, and I'm preaching about magic spell books from an ancient text. The Holy Spirit has something to teach us from this, and I think it's this. Equipped, mature Christians identify with Jesus, and that makes everything else fall to the side. Now, what you see here is you see these, these itinerant Jewish exorcists coming in. They're trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. But those are not Christians. Those are Jewish exorcists who do not claim Jesus as their Savior. They're just using it because they saw that it worked when Paul did it. They said, I'm going to try this spell just like I'll try this spell in my spell book. In the name of Jesus, be cast out. And do you think Jesus is honored by that? No. And so therefore the demon overtakes them. And great fear came across the city because the demon clearly saw through the fake spell that the Jewish exorcist was trying to use. 
And so you see the danger here of an ill-equipped person. Again, with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, people cast out demons. You see it in the modern day even. And there's a lot of maturity we need to think about there. I'm not saying you need to go out and exercise demons in the next two weeks. But what I am saying is that without Jesus, you have no chance of doing that. In fact, you're doing a dangerous thing. You will walk away wounded and naked, maybe, just like these guys did. But for those that claim Jesus and have their identity in him, verse 17, it says the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled because his power was high. And it says they came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of them began to lay out their magic books and burn them in the sights of me. Each of us have things, even as mature Christians, that we practice or that we get into that are not things that Jesus wants us to be involved in. And maybe in a city like this, there's a lot of Christians that also practice the magic arts. Or maybe for you, maybe it's not the magic arts, but maybe it's something else that the Lord is asking you to bring, to confess, to bring into the sight of many, and to burn. Because when you're a mature Christian, it's Jesus as your identity, not Jesus plus magic, not Jesus plus plus Hindu practices, not Jesus, plus other religions. It's Jesus as your identity. And that's the beauty, I think, of what these guys are doing here is they brought together their other things and said, Lord, we see you as so beautiful, you as so powerful, you as the one who can do wondrous things, that we see the worthlessness of our tarot cards. We see the worthlessness of this crystal that we're looking into. We see the worthlessness of these spells Because the Holy Spirit can do exponentially more than we ask or imagine. I have so many articles here that I'm not going to have time to read to you about modern day witchcraft and what modern day new age practices that people have gotten into and why they've gotten into it. But just do a Google search sometime and read about why people are going to things that many people in our city are going to. And the reason is, is they're looking for a connection to the spiritual realm. And what this text is showing us is that that longing is genuine and true, but the Holy Spirit is the one that quenches that thirst. And that's why Paul clarifies it so quickly and says, listen, you need to know about the Holy Spirit because he's the one who will guide you into all truth. Just the last little point I want to make here before concluding. Uh, The rest of the chapter, verses 21 to 40, well, actually, starting with verse 19, It says here, they brought together their books, burned them all, and they counted up how much it cost. It says 50,000 pieces of silver. You may say, how much is 50,000 pieces of silver? 50,000 pieces of silver, uh, one piece of silver is one day's wages. So this is 50,000 days worth of wages, which is 135 years worth of money. That's how much these books were worth. And these people thought enough of Jesus to burn it. And the rest of the chapter, it says here, you know, a riot in Ephesus. That's what the the bold heading is, verses 21 to 41. It says a riot breaks out because the economy was breaking down. (laughs) Because these believers began to break down the economy and not buy the silver to make their idols or make their magic books to where the people of the city got so upset because the economy was going to the tank. So again, modern day relevance. The city of Salem 
gets, what is it, a third or a fourth or half, I don't even know what the exact number is, of their money during the month of October. And so much of that, you know, is going towards magic or witchcraft or other spiritualities. Can you imagine if a revival in the name of Jesus broke out in this city, what it actually would do to the economy? It's a scary thought, actually. But these guys thought it was worth it. And ultimately, the people of Ephesus ran them out of town because it scared them that much. But they counted the cost. This is what it means to be equipped. This is what it means to be equipped. Even if the economy were to tank, Jesus is the better. He's worth 135 years of money because he's given us life to the full. Let me close with this illustration. In the Department of the Treasury in the U.S., they keep a record of all the varieties of counterfeit bills that are out there. It's in the hundreds, maybe the thousands, of different types of counterfeit bills. And they analyze them, they take a look at them, they look at things like physical characteristics, the weight, the height, the paper type. They look at the portrait watermark. They look at the security strip. They look at microprinting. They look at color-shifting ink. They look at raised printing. There's little parts if you feel close enough. There's a little 3D security ribbon. All those things are necessary to see the differences of counterfeit versus the real. But you know, ultimately, what matters when trying to identify a counterfeit? The one true bill. You can have a thousand counterfeits and know what all the counterfeits look like, but if you don't have the real one, it doesn't matter. And as Christians, to be equipped means to see the one true real thing. And by that one true real thing, see the thousands of counterfeits that are leading you astray, that are worthless, because the one is the one that has value. May we be equipped in that way as his followers. Let me close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we live in a world that is complicated because of the variety of spiritualities. But Lord, I pray today, as we live in this city at this time, Lord, help us not to just get so concerned with looking at the counterfeits or looking at the variety of things that people are involved in that we actually miss just being equipped in the one true thing. So Lord, make us laser focused as a church on equipping one another to do the works of ministry, to know our scriptures well, to be so in step with the Holy Spirit that we see you clearly and then love and compassion and grace flows out to those who are swept away by the counterfeits. So Lord, would you encourage us as we leave today, build up in us a strong faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.